times. Yeah, what yeah. doesn't kill us makes us stronger, right? I mean, again, uh, it's not something to be happy about in any way. It's a very sad situation, uh, unnecessary, absolutely. Mm. But I, I believe that we will come out of this stronger. We are fighting for the right cause and end of the day will prevail. Hello, recursive community. Today on the podcast, we welcome a Ukrainian entrepreneur who is currently in Sofia. Dmitry Alexandrov is the CEO of Homesters, a SaaS provider of automated digital marketing solutions for property segments. For eight years, he grew the company from an idea to a prop tech business running in five countries. Homesters was acquired by the global media company Ringier at the end of 2022. But Dmitry is still steering the wheel to the scale the company solutions even more. Dmitry, I'm very happy that you're here. Thank you for having me. I um, encountered your story just recently and I was very inspired by that and um, I encourage also more and more people who are not with the Bulgarian background mm -hmm. to develop their businesses in this part of the region and I think you're like a great example. Um, <clears throat> tell me, I would like to bring you a bit back in time and uh, to check where the, your story started. So you were born in Ukraine? Yeah. You grew up in, in Ukraine? Yeah, born in Ukraine, um, uh, the Black Sea coast, mm -hmm. uh, a place called Yevpatoria in Crimea. I grew up there um, then went to study in Kiev. Mm -hmm. I also briefly studied in the, in the United Kingdom. I uh, went to college there. I was very, very useful for my career and then went back to Kiev and uh, went to uh, International Economics University there. And what did you dream of becoming as a grown-up back then? Uh, you know, it's, it's interesting that um, for many people, what they go for when they're young is very different from when they, what they end up being, right? But for me, it was, uh, so I went to study international economics, and that's what I'm doing at the moment. I'm running an international business. So it's kind of, always saw myself doing business. Mm -hmm. That's what I'm doing now. Yeah. I guess back then, still, the opportunities in the tech sector weren't that visible as they are now. Yeah. I mean, it, back in the day, it wasn't that clear what exactly the business meant for me, right? Mm. And the, uh, the industries that I went into eventually, the fintech, the prop tech, they probably were non-existent back in the day or just emerging. But yeah, by, by, the, by the start of my career, that's actually something that uh, yeah, I went into. And did you think that you're going to become an entrepreneur one day? Yeah, for sure. Oh, yeah. So <laughs> do you have this in your family yeah, as well? Okay. Yeah. My family, my dad used to run a business. Uh, so my brother is also a successful entrepreneur. And uh, yeah, I, I saw the same uh, picture, same career for myself. Yeah. And I guess you also experienced together with them the uh, highs and the lows of running a business as usual. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I mean, yeah, for, with my family as well. Like my parents, they had some rough times in the 90s and 90s. Um, But yeah, they, they managed to overcome all the hurdles that went their way. Mm -hmm. And yeah, end of the day, they, they did well. And I hope I could do the same. So you worked as a project and product manager in the fintech space. Um, and before that, you were also in the telecom industry. Yeah. You joined uh, Homesters afterward. Have you, what have been the, the drivers of your professional journey in between? What did you believe mm. that uh, you would like to reach at some point? Yeah, it's a great question. Uh, actually, I started from, um, from marketing. The first few things that I went into were, were marketing. And then uh, back in the day, I worked in a retail bank. Mm -hmm. And they offered me to try pro project management because they probably saw me as an active guy who was interested in everything. And they said, how about you try that? And I thought, and it was a very, very good idea for me to do that because um, 
uh, a project manager is like you know they say it's like a mini CEO because okay. you're basically your job is to uh, see different parts of the business and try to combine them together into something that's called a project right mm -hmm. and that was very very important to try to understand in every project to get a holistic view of what you're doing right as a young guy I had to deal with things I had no idea about right like for example um, one day we were rebranding uh, Ukraine's largest telecom where I worked called Kyivstar. Another day back in the fintech, I would do a CRM implementation for all the branches of the bank, right? Which I knew nothing about. Yeah. Uh, or uh, there's a new legislation coming in and we as our organization have to adapt to that. What do mm -hmm. I know about the national bank's legislation? Nothing. But it's your job as a project manager to gather the people around the table to understand, to really grind into the problem and to come up with a solution. And that was a very, very helpful experience, which I think really reflected on my f further career. I'm wondering now if it's also maybe a question of courage. You know, uh, I think many people are a bit too afraid before jumping into the cold water in an area where they don't know much about. And there yeah. then the others who are, okay, I don't know what is it about, but I'm, it's, I'm interested. I'm going to manage somehow. And if I don't manage, then I'll find a different path. Yeah. I wonder if this is innate or is it something that we can learn? You know, um, from my personal experience, this is very interesting. I never really thought about it. I was just the person, you know, to, I threw myself in that ocean and then I learned how to swim, right? Mm. Um, I'm looking back at this now and like I had no idea about the things I was working with. I had to study everything from, from scratch, right? Like the IT projects, the legislation, whatever I was dealing with. And it really, it really took some courage. Um, but, you know, I saw it as a sort of a, a knot that you are trying to untie. Uh, you know, one string at a time, one string at a time, and then the picture becomes clearer and clearer. And that's what I learned to do, and that's what I'm still doing today, being the CEO of a company. What about your learning process? Do you have you developed some kind of methodology for yourself on how do you um, continuously improve your skill set and knowledge base, and and so on and so forth? Not, 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 not that I can say something. Let me say yeah. that again. Uh, not that I can. Uh, think of something very specific in terms of learning i just as this uh, this way of addressing projects the way of see, seeing them as a knot that you have to untie mm. that's my sort of small mental uh, exercise that i would do mm. uh, okay here's a problem how can we try to divide it into smaller problems yeah how do we we as we say eat this elephant by elephant by parts right yeah. that's what i would be doing that's how i would uh, try to grind into complex problems mm. i like that yeah, this is where the problem-solving mindset kicks in. <laughs> yeah, I had some, um, uh, you know, my brother is a consultant. Yeah. And he uh, used to work at McKinsey at some point, And uh, he also helped me a little bit with, uh, you know, this. Let's let's uh, find the three main things about this problem. What are the top three things that we need to solve? This they have. He has a very structured approach and also helped my thinking a little bit. Mm -hmm. Do you think um, a detailed view of the things or more like an... An overview, like a bird view perspective, mm. is more necessary in, this, in such kinds of situations. Yeah, I think really it's uh, it's about a helicopter view first, yeah. right? because you have to see the full picture first. 
And but then it's about these small nitty gritty details that you have to dig into into every part of that, right? So okay, we implement a CRM system. How it's going to work? Who's going to use it? What exactly this this feature mean, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. But generally, why are we doing this? What does this bring to our our organization, right? Mm-hmm. What are our key KPIs that we should achieve? by doing this because really often people who are in the process they miss the big picture and vice versa the people who see the big picture they don't want to get into those small details yeah. and i think the, the the truth is in between you have to do both yeah yeah i had this i think when i was a bit younger i was very much focused on details mm-hmm. for whatever reason i really also enjoyed small details even when i, I would read a book mm-hmm. i would just fixate on a certain sentence or a mm-hmm. word that kind of you know excited me and uh, <clears throat> developing this kind of bird view or a helicopter view uh, was challenging. I was mm. always inspired and uh, I admired people who could actually do that. Mm. I always felt like I'm float in this sense of the, uh, of, of, you know, my, my nature. Mm. In any case, so you mentioned that, uh, you know, being a project manager is like a training for becoming a CEO, like, yeah. a, like you're like a mini CEO. Um, tell us a bit more about your path of, you know, to the CEO position. Oh yeah, that's that's a, a really great path. Um, so back in 2018, uh, sorry, 2014, I was working as a project manager for the country's largest telecom. Mm. It was a very steady job. Um, I, had, I was managing really important things for the company, but um, one of the people that I worked with uh, in the in the fintech before. Um, my great colleague and friend and mentor, I can say, Andrew Olenik, he, um, he had this um, idea and insight into the prop tech. So he basically saw that there's this huge industry, um, one of the biggest in the world, if not the biggest, right? The real mm-hmm. estate, which is very conservative and doesn't change much. And uh, he said, okay, there's a way that we can, with, uh, with our energy, with our knowledge of similar industries, try to transform that. And he basically inspired me to leave my steady job, believe his idea on a tissue, and just go join this uh, absolutely well non-existent company back then. So let's let's go and do it. And I was young and foolish enough to try to do that. So you really literally joined at the moment where it was still like an non-existent. Idea on the non-existent, yeah, wow. it's just an idea. And um, uh, so yeah, I joined. And I, in the beginning, I was literally the project manager because there was nothing; nothing existed. So we had to come up with like work through the idea, the ROR, through user pains, through the journey, come up with prototypes, come up with the MVP of a product. Obviously, get the team on board. Um, yeah, and that's that's how we started. So then uh, a few more people joined us. Um, and uh, we had to find, you know, how we're going to structure ourselves. Obviously, it wasn't very well structured as a corporation. My role was um, head of innovation in the sense that I was running everything product and tech related. Okay. Um, and, uh, well, Andrew, he joined himself as CEO. We had one more co-founder who was more in charge of the business development. Mm-hmm. And we all worked together in this. And then over time, I was more and more into the operational um, daily part of the business. So I think by 2018, I became the deputy CEO. And we were by then a much bigger company. I think back back in the day, we were like already 50-ish people. Okay. We grew quite well. And then um, by 2021, it became apparent that uh, I was already you know, running the daily operations of the company. Uh, while Andrew, my partner, he was char- in charge of more investor relation, funding and strategy. But when we secured what exactly our strategy was and how, how we're going to uh, execute it, 
then I just uh, became the CEO because it was a very clear strategy that we had to execute. And I knew the business inside out. Wasn't it for you a bit of a culture clash when you had the whole corporate experience beforehand and a very clear structure, which could be sometimes very restraining and limiting and then you jump into a new project and you Mm. have to create that from the whole structure basically from scratch and in the beginning nothing is really working yeah exactly (laughs) i know but i think it's actually a good thing it was a cultural clash for sure in the sense that you're coming from a background where everything is steady and everything is clear and there are defined roles into a you know an ocean where anything can be possible and uh, you can do anything and there's no clear rules etc etc so uh, it was, but on the other hand, I think it was really a great thing because I had back in the day when we just when we started, I had already like four years of corporate experience, mm-hmm. so I knew what corporations were like, and not just some com- companies like Ukraine's biggest telecom, one of the largest retail banks. So I knew what a company should be like when it grows, and this understanding it really gives you very important insight how you should grow your company. Obviously, a company of 50 or 100 people is not a company of 5,000 people, but you understand which way it's going. And it was very, very helpful for me. Mm-hmm. I think especially the younger generations, they kind of like dream of, um, you know, founding their own companies, mm-hmm. becoming part of a startup. But they felt very similar like you, having a bit of a, I wouldn't say corporate experience. I think the biggest organization that I've worked for is around 700 people. Mm-hmm. But it's still gave me a very clear sense of what is it to work in structures, what is it to work also with uh, bigger budgets, because this is yeah. it could be also um, scary in the beginning when yeah. you suddenly have to spend, you know, um, the money and the resources, especially for marketing um, in a, on a bigger scale. So when I then joined a startup company, I was like, okay, this is what we can actually improve in order for us to be more efficient. Yeah. But the next challenge were uh, the other members of the team mm-hmm. who were, yeah, but we're a startup. We want to keep that culture. We don't want to be, you know, we don't want to have so many processes. We don't mm. want to use so many rules and, and so on and so forth. I would argue that um, in some way this is actually inevitable, that uh, there is no way to run um, a company of 100 people the same way as you run a company of five people. Right? Mm. Because it just turns into uncontrollable chaos. Right? Mm-hmm. And um, it's actually great when you're very flexible and agile when you're small. But I, I, I don't think there's a way to keep being that, having no processes and no structure when you're, when you're growing. You mentioned that Andre was uh, in a way also your mentor. Yeah. Can you share a bit more about the relationship you had with him? What did you learn? How did he shape your career path afterwards? Yeah, I mean, we were uh, we were good friends, and um, he always tried to think of my career maybe o- almost as his own. What would he wow. do? Uh, yeah, I, oh, I on the other hand always tried to prove my value and really, you know, work my work my ass off. Sorry for saying <laughs> that uh, for for our joint goals. And yeah, he was really helping me. Okay, would this decision make sense for you in the short term, in the midterm, in the long term? And that that was very, very beneficial. And still to the day, we're very good friends. And uh, although he himself has exited the company, Mm -hmm. uh, but he is still a very good friend of mine. We just met each other recently in Asia. And yeah, this is one of the relationship for the life, you know, for the future. Some people would say that, you know, starting 
uh, your own company with friends is kind of a risky endeavor because the friendship might go uh, get lost. Yeah. I guess you have experienced it in a different way. Do you have a secret? How do you keep the friendship out of the business? <laughs> well, maybe keep uh, things a bit diff uh, separate, right? Mm. Uh, there's the business side of the things and there's the personal side of the things. We were lucky in this regard, but yeah. Maybe to all other things, I have, uh, all other people, I have to say, uh, think twice before doing business with your close friends. <laughs> Definitely, yeah, <clears throat> I couldn't agree more. It's it's it always felt to me a bit more like a marriage, you know, mm, because yeah. it is not um, you know a relationship a relationship that you can easily go out from. Yeah, and it is also a relationship where there should be space for all the parties to grow and to develop yeah, and pursue sure. their own vision of themselves. Yeah, exactly. Let's not forget that uh, very often, especially in startups, we spend more time with our colleagues than with our families, right? Isn't that, uh, you know... <laughs> yeah, it's mind-blowing in a way. Mind-blowing, yeah. But uh, it is what it is. <laughs> I think there are many founders who are actually spending more time with their co-founders than with their kids. <laughs> <laughs> <clears throat> Tell us about the real estate uh, industry back then. Um, yeah. What prompted you to innovate in this space? What kind of problem did you see? Where yeah. was the knot? Yeah, it's a very interesting question because actually, as most startups, we pivoted quite a few times. Yeah? Mm. Uh, our first idea and what we were trying to solve is we wanted to solve the way people buy uh, real estate abroad. Mm -hmm. So that was uh, the initial idea of Homesters.com and we quickly learned that this is a very complicated problem to solve, and we were not able to solve that. And then we pivoted. Um, so the, another problem that we saw was the market of new constructions. Uh, if, you, if I'm looking for a primary housing, yeah, mm -hmm. then uh, in, in most markets, back in 2014, 2015, there was no place for me to go and compare all offers from all the developers. Yeah, Especially in the emerging markets where we know up to 70% of buyers want to buy in the new new homes, new developments from developers, right? Okay. And uh, there were this area had a huge revenue potential, but at the same time was very much neglected by the classifieds because they would just have their listing model and that would be primary for the secondary market. Okay. And when you have a property project, there would be no no place for a customer to go compare them. So that's what Homesters became about. We believed in new constructions and we said we're going to uh, create a product that's going to help people compare the new developments and we're going to work mm -hmm. with property developers to uh, uh, for them to list uh, with our portals for them to uh, get leads from us and to get transactions from us and that's the model that we were able to scale to different markets across the world how did you pick the first markets yeah it's a very interesting story so i mentioned we had another co-founder maria she had a digital marketing agency okay and uh, some of her customers were uh, property developers and some of the biggest customers were in Kazakhstan. <laughs> and uh, yeah, actually like one or two largest developers in the country back then were working with this agency. And by talking to them, she realized that in that market, there was no product for them. And we combined the product. We, ha we, we had this cross-border product by then. We had our, you know, our team already in place. And we had this thought that, okay, we have relationships with developers and there's no product. So how about we create a product there? Mm -hmm. That's when we went for Kazakhstan. And then majority of our story, we've built all products in Kazakhstan, despite all of us not being uh, people from Kazakhstan. So we had to set up the team there. We had to set up an office, uh, everything from scratch, which we did from 2015. And by the way, today, we're one of the largest companies in that regard in Kazakhstan today. 
Mm-hmm. And that out of there, we managed to scale this internationally to European countries. Yeah. So that's a very <laughs> unusual path of people exactly. in Ukraine doing a business in Kazakhstan and then scaling it to Europe. back to Europe. <laughs> but that's, um, yeah, we, we never look for easy ways, our company, no. I guess, but I guess you just, you know, uh, an opportunity revealed yeah. and you were smart enough to grasp it. Exactly. Right? That's what happened. So we, we saw this opportunity and we went for that market. And then we were able to find partners in different European markets and uh, scale our business there. So it, in the end, it uh, turned out to be quite uh, to work out quite well. Mm-hmm. And I guess these developers in Kazakhstan, they were also your early adopters. So you exactly. were able to... Um, optimize the product according to their needs. Exactly. So that was yeah. a, a really unique opportunity that we had a direct contact with them mm-hmm. from the digital marketing background. Mm-hmm. So we were able to really go show the product, ask them how does this solve their pain points. And that was a unique advantage that we were able then to scale. And even today, if you ask us, I think this is the one of the strongest uh, traits that we have, that we have excellent relationships with property developers in every market where we work. Mm-hmm. And they are our number one uh, providers of feedback. Okay. Wow. Yeah. Interesting. <clears throat> mm. And uh, in how many countries are you uh, present at this point? At this point? Yeah. Today we are present in four countries. Mm-hmm. So we work in Kazakhstan. We work in Europe, in Switzerland. Mm-hmm. We work in Poland. We work in Serbia, close here. Yeah. Okay. And uh, um, I can say at the moment we are talking about two or three more markets. Aren't these very different? You know, Switzerland is very specific, especially when it comes mm. to real estate. Yeah. Uh, also quite expensive from yeah. what I hear. Yeah. So how do you make a product applicable for such different markets or it doesn't matter? No, it does matter. Um, the way people search real estate in different countries and the way people buy real estate in different countries is very different. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, you, you know, there is no one platform, global platform for search of real estate. And that, that tell, that's why, because the way people mm-hmm. search is different, right? So what we spent uh, the last seven, eight years on is trying to customize our platform in a way that it would be applicable for these different needs in these different markets. Mm-hmm. So the core product is the same. Because it's, you know, it's a property project, it has this inventory, you can send leads. So main components are the same, but then you can adjust it in different ways to different markets. Well, just a few examples. So in Kazakhstan, people uh, look for real estate by naming addresses as intersections of the streets, right? Okay. That's how they understand. Oh, it's intersection between those two streets. Okay, that's one thing, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, let's say um, in Poland uh, or in Serbia, there can be s- different things. And that's what our platform can do. We can actually take the core and then add 10, 20% of local local features that would make the product feel local. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But then again, I guess the li- <clears throat> scalability is limited by the same um, challenges as for all the companies which are um, operating in Europe. You always have to have like a, a localized perspective on how you can roll out your product there, how you can go to market there. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. So uh, at first we thought, uh, you know, we were young and foolish and we thought we're going to conquer the world all by ourselves. Mm-hmm. Uh, the, the, the five well, four active markets and more coming up at the moment, it's not everything that we've had. We've had some failed stories as well. 
Tell okay. me about them. <laughs> yeah, it's the, it's the best. Uh, well, for example, um, at one point we thought, okay, we we're gonna, we need we need to go more actively in Asia because there's a lot of new de- new developments there. True. No product, everybody wants that. So we picked a market. We did a lot of analysis. Uh, we decided to go uh, start a project in Vietnam, and uh, it was a very very hard market to crack for different reasons, uh, including. I would say uh, some cultural differences with the local team where you have to adapt to the way they think, the way they do business, uh, also partnerships, the way you uh, organize these partnerships with the property developers and things like that. And end of the day, we were not able to do that. We we did not have enough funds to keep keep working on that market. So we had to scale back. Mm -hmm. And um, that uh, taught us that... um, yeah, the real estate markets require a lot of funding and a lot of local understanding. So the way we scale today is via partnerships. Mm-hmm. So we would not go to Switzerland by ourselves or to Poland by ourselves, but instead we would find a local partner, a company who is willing to enter the segment, which we know how it works. We have the technology for and we, ha- we have the know-how. So basically we give them the tech, we give them the playbook, and we partner mm-hmm. to, to create a leader in new dev segment in their country. I think often, especially in the <clears throat> B2B business space, the partner ch- channel is very underestimated, you know. Mm. I think uh, a lot of startup founders believe that their product will be so good yeah. that everyone would be actually ready to buy it. But the human part of doing business, the relationship part yeah. of doing business is very often underestimated. And this so is what important. you can actually gain from partnership. Exactly. Yeah. So important and so <clears throat> underestimated. It's not just about having the best product. It's about having the relationship, the B2B part, right? Mm-hmm. It's about understanding the local market. It's about, well, knowing the local language perfectly well, end of the day, right? Even yeah. that. And th- those things are very, very important. And that's the, well, that's what we learned the hard way. Yeah. Yeah by first trying to do it all ourselves. Yeah. But we were, um, you know, flexible enough to adjust. And now we, we work with partners. And uh, it's also very important to find the right partner. But mm-hmm. when you do, yeah, things work magic. Tell me about what you've learned from scaling back, you know, saying then um, that's the end to something that is not working. Yeah. I think that's another challenging thing for uh, for all of us, actually. When you invest so much time and energy and resources into a project and you're starting to see the signs that it's not going into the direction that uh, you're supposed to, you you imagined it. How do you, first of all, make the decision that you have to scale back? When Mm. is it too early? When is it too late? How did you know? Yeah. Yeah. Well, um, I agree with you that it's a very tough part of running business mm. because you always want to believe that everything will work out, but some things just don't work out. And for different reasons, you just have to make those decisions. Uh, we had to make quite a few yeah. uh, different in different phases of our company. As I said, we had to scale back the international expansion of uh, cross-border model. Mm-hmm. It's too complicated for us to crack. We had to scale back from a certain from certain countries. It was too too hard for us to crack. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, end of the day, uh, you as a startup or you as a company, you have limited resource. So you should really reevaluate like every month. Like, is mm-hmm. this is doing this the right thing? Should I still be doing this, mm-hmm. uh, or maybe uh, I should stop doing this? Um, should I 
spend my resources, my limited resources elsewhere. And this is what we did as a team. So we would um, you know, always have these management meetings and management offsites where we would constantly reevaluate our opportunities. And we had to, to make these tough decisions. I really remember us sitting around the table and voting. We literally were voting who thinks we should do that and who should do that. And did you go with the democratic vote, with the democratic decision? Uh, yeah, yeah, exactly. But okay. uh, we were usually on the same page. It's like okay. we were a um, like-minded group. Mm-hmm. So it's not like uh, it was not personal, definitely not. It was just the decisions that we had to make, and we made them. Mm-hmm. I have a question here that I've prepared, but I think it's very obvious your yeah. what your answer is going to be. I'm still willing us for us uh, it's willing that uh, we talk a bit more about it. If you have to evaluate the importance of the team in a startup yeah. and the importance of a product, yeah. which will be actually more important. And maybe does it change in the mm. different stages of a, of a company? Yeah. Um, for me, I think you can um, see from my story that mm. we, it was always about our team mm. because we pivoted more than one time. So we changed our product. Yeah. If you have the right team, then you can ch- always change your product. Right? If you have a great product and you don't have a team, then for me, it's the worst situation to have. You know what they say, um, culture eats strategy for breakfast, mm-hmm. right? So that's, that's what I firmly believe in, mm-hmm. that, um, yeah, with, with the team like ours, we were uh, able to, to do magic things. And, um, you know, in a startup, you cannot always hire people by processes because you don't have the processes. You cannot expect what's going to happen. You can earn pe- uh, hire people by values. And that's mm-hmm. what we did, right? So we had a set of values and whenever we're hiring somebody, and still we do that today, is this a person that fits our values? And if yes, then we can move forward. If not, even if you're an amazing person, you, we shouldn't hire you. You shouldn't be part of our team. <clears throat> How did you choose these values did you have something like a facilitated workshop maybe you can share a bit more practical yeah. tips on um, how do you do that in a startup company because i think this is something that remains often quite invisible yeah. we hear that from corporations which are you know starting to mm. evaluate the culture and they write yeah. their vision and their mission statement and uh, employer value propositions but yeah. actually this is too late i yeah. believe that because culture is so critical for the development yeah. of the organization, it needs to be set or at least made a bit um, more visible already in the beginning. Yeah. So one of the first things we did when we already had a core team in place for our company is we went on a management offsite and we decided uh, on a few things. Like first, our there was a methodology called the gazelles. It's, uh, it was suggested um, and was ran in the bank where I used to work before by our founder, Greg Krasnov, who um, suggested that basically you are trying to define top-down uh, what your company is about, what is your, it's called, big hairy goal. Big uh, hairy goal. <laughs> yeah, what is, what is your uh, playground? Where are you playing? And then one of the key things is uh, what are your values? So it's very interesting that despite the fact that we pivoted a few times, our playground remained the same and our mm. big hairy goal remained the same. It was to transform the residential real estate market, right? Mm-hmm. Which we did. 
Um, and um, one of the things was to define values. So we, I really remember that we sat around a flip chart and basically we thought, what is the kind of a person that we want in our organization? And we said, okay, it's a person that has drive. Uh, it has a person that is uh, supporting in the sense that like willing to cooperate with the colleagues. Um, it's a person that is very communicative. So we're talking, we're going to talk smart to each other. So we, uh, a person that is problem solving because of, you know, mm. there are going to be complex projects, uh, products and problems that we're going to encounter and we're going to need the people who are willing and are capable of solving them. So we d created this list of values and we would always stick to them. And still to this day, they are the same because the company changes, the product changes, but your values remain the same, at least in my view. I cannot agree more. I do believe that it, uh, a company can change its product so many times and innovate and also um, grow the business in different directions but the brand because i'm a marketing person mm. the core values mm. and probably also the mission they remain the same yeah, yeah the vision might, might change at some point <laughs> but yeah. the mission remains the same um i don't know much about your industry but yeah. i would expect that uh, the pandemic had actually a very a rather positive effect on what's happening there. Now we are experiencing in Europe also, not only in Europe, <laughs> um, in the Western world, an economic downturn. Yeah. How does it play on the prop tech industry and uh, how are you reacting to the mm. current developments as a business to mm. that? Yeah, as a whole, um, to start with COVID, uh, COVID had, I think, a generally positive impact on mm. our industry. I mean, in the short run, Short run, of course, it had a negative impact because there was less new, less construction, less sales. People were not actively buying properties. But then, when it ended, everybody realized that digital is the way. Mm -hmm. uh, so, if let's say ten years ago, people, no, almost nobody would buy real estate online. At the moment, it's much more uh, acceptable for the people to do that. So that's one of the things that changed for us. So the adoption curves of different innovations in our segment really was speeding up. Yeah. Yeah, it's uh, picking up after COVID. So that's one thing. And the economic downturn, it also has its effect. I mean, we can see in different parts of the world, especially, let's say, in Europe, where 2021, uh, it was a year of um, it's a buyer market. Yeah. Mm -hmm. mm, I'm sorry, sorry. It was a seller market in the sense that uh, I as a seller, I as a real estate developer can uh, sell whatever I build in six months. I don't have to worry about marketing. People are just going to buy it, you know? Wow. Yeah, okay. it was like that. Like <laughs> because in, uh, of the low interest rates? Low interest rates, yes. exactly. Uh, high economic growth. People were just buying real estate. Just one example. Um, we have partners also, part of Ringia in Slovakia. They were telling me that there are waiting lists for new developments. So mm -hmm. if I'm a new, new development, if I want to launch a new project, there's like uh, already a waiting list of a few thousand people who would buy whatever I build, right? Mm -hmm. So things like so it's a very hot market. And we, as a prop tech, we have solutions for the seller market. And then now it's shifting for the buyer market in the sense that I, as a buyer, can choose because there's a lot of supply, and um, yeah, I would choose what I go for. And we, as a prop tech, also need to have solutions for this kind of market. And we have both. So okay. and we should have both. 
So we should uh, ad adapt our value proposition for that. But end of the day, I think PropTech and um, digital will win in the sense that it's the most efficient channel of marketing, for, for, for example, for developers, but also for the property agents. Yeah. So end of the day, it's going to win and it's going to grow. I believe that. And what do you think is going to be the effect of um, a adoption of AI in prop day? Yeah, we already see a few things happening in that regard. Mm. Um, one is, of course, the matching algorithms, yeah. which are the big part of, uh, well, what, what, what the property portals do. It's basically they're matching you with the properties that you would like. Yeah. Uh, they, I think they will become more and more sophisticated and they will become more and more accurate. Today, they're still in the sense of, you know, you go and you, uh, you run 50 filters and then let's see what happens. But over time, it's going to be more and more personalized and more and more adaptable to your actual search request. Mm -hmm. And I think the conversational interfaces that are now appearing, uh, they're going to be also more and more prominent in, um, in our industry, like the, the likes of ChatGPT and, and other uh, services of this kind. I think they're going to be more and more active. Uh, the way I see it is uh, in five or 10 years time, it's going to be, instead of going to a property portal, you would just ask uh, Robert, like find me a uh, uh, two uh, properties or five properties that I'll select from, one hour drive from Rome uh, near the seaside where there's a kindergarten nearby. And that's what's going to happen. And then you like it, okay, uh, book me a, a viewing or connect mm -hmm. me to the agent. That's that's what's going to happen. But don't you think that we're moving also a bit more to a shared economy where we wouldn't be buying that much, but of course we would be using yeah. it, but in a totally different model. Oh, that's yeah. that's for sure. Yeah. That's for sure. Um, I mean, I, I've, I've described an example. It mm -hmm. does not have to be buy, right? It yeah. can be rent or co-own or share or everything. Mm -hmm. I, I think we are moving uh, within that direction. I think it's going to continue. But there's another trend, which is uh, what, what COVID really Im impacted is uh, some of the people were still saying, okay, I need my own home. You know, yeah. to stay in. So uh, I think the the, um, the concept of ownership is still going to remain, of course. But yeah, the, the trend for sharing um, is also going to be quite massive. Yeah. When you pick a new market, do you look at um, the rates of ownership of in, over real estate? Uh, not is that much because uh, because we, we, we also have solutions for rentals. Yeah, okay. Mm -hmm. So we could we could play in the in the both segments. Mm -hmm. I was more thinking about the the sharing economy and um, the ownership concept uh, from another perspective. Like um, more and more ideas of fractional ownership are emerging. That's mm -hmm. another big aspect related to that. Yes. That's going to be, I think, in the next five ten years, the, this will be reimagined in the sense that you don't have to own a hundred percent of a property that you live in or you rent out, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Yeah, and it's already happening. Like last two, three years, that a lot, a lot of startups already doing that. I think um, many other things are happening as well because um, property ownership is very close to the life cycle of a person. Yeah, yeah. So you go through the different stages of your life, and you know, in certain stages, you would need different kind of properties as well. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Just like we move to the so-called serial monogamy, yeah. <laughs> where for a different stage of life, you would probably be more fitting with a different kind of person, partner. <laughs> I'm not going to comment on that. No, no, My wife no is need. not going to like that. I think it's going to be pretty similar with the properties. Um, so we, I don't 
see us making such lifelong commitments but mm. then it's going we would also need this kind of models of ownership that yeah. are much more flexible to am i a single person now yeah. am i a couple am i yeah. a person with one kid two kids three kids five kids <laughs> exactly and the, yeah. the liquidity component is one of that like you know today if i want to buy a real or sell a real estate that's a process for the months right mm -hmm. like and do i really need all this time to spend all this time and all this effort to buy or sell a real estate. How about I buy 5% of an apartment in Sofia today and 10% of an apartment in Rio uh, tomorrow, right? Mm -hmm. That would be cool. Yeah, especially also for vacation rental, uh, vacation yeah. property. Yeah. yeah. Okay. It's an exciting future that it's coming ahead of us. Um, <clears throat> tell me, what kind of a mindset do you need to build as a as a leader to set up the the team for an international success. What did you learn from uh, the perspective of an organizational builder? Mm. I think there are a few components to that, uh, yeah. which I would like to um, to highlight. One component for me was always trying to empower the team. Yeah. I am a strong uh, believer in the fact that. If you empower your team and if you let them make decisions, then uh, the output is going to be uh, huge. It's going to be really, really positive other than you just telling them what to do, right? I really believe in that. I believe also in the idea of, uh, you know, what's called turquoise organizations. We are not there, but uh, I believe in this concept generally that um, organization where people are empowered and they really believe in the the goal of the company, then they would be 10 times more proactive, 10 times more efficient, et cetera, et cetera. So I really believe in that. And that's what I try to do every day with my team, not tell them what to do, but ask them how would they do it and uh, ask them to find for the, for the solution, find the solutions for, mm -hmm. to achieve our goals. So that's one component. The other component I think is very important in the international scaling part, which you mentioned, it's um, being open-minded. Uh, and being very flexible because people think and work very differently in different parts of the world and you have to accept that, you have to understand that and you have to be open for that, which is what we learned also by working in Central Asia, Middle East, Europe and other parts of the world. You have to embrace how different we are and be flexible to 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 work with different people every day. Yeah, here steps in the cultural <clears throat> diversity. Yeah. I would like to come back to the power of empowerment, uh, to the, I'm going to say it again. <clears throat> I would like to come back to the, your point about empowering people. Yeah. I think it's a very, um, it's, it sounds great, but yeah. actually it is a very difficult task because you're stepping a bit into the role of the coach, yeah. you know, of the psychotherapist. You have to understand what are the challenges that the person on the other side is facing? Which are the fears? What is actually stepping them, uh, is, is keeping them from unfolding their full potential? Mm. And um, this is not always very visible. Yeah, it's true. Yeah? Especially for people who uh, would like to keep their image as uh, successful, as problem solvers, as, yeah. you know, performing. Um, they hide their fears very well. Yeah. So... I wonder how do you would you have some tips on for other leaders 
on how to develop their empathy and also their approach as um, you know empowering leaders to towards the organization because i think the organizations of the future will need more and more of that um, mm -hmm. we are going into um, an, an age where organizations are going to become much more entrepreneurial mm. yeah and this kind of leadership is going to be more needed mm. but it requires a very different skill set yeah well for sure i think one of the tips or tricks that uh, were was very helpful for us is a, something we already talked a little bit about is hiring the right people okay right because you as you said you have to search for people with drive you have to search for people with problem-solving skills, the people who would be supporting each other in the process, who people who are willing to talk if they have a problem or if they have a solution. It's so important. Mm. So that that's a big part of that. Another big part for me is, you know, it's it sounds simple, but sometimes it's so hard. It's just talking to people, you know. It's just talking to them. It's treating them with a lot of respect and talking to them. Like, okay, what's on your mind? What do you think? Do you really believe in this solution? Please don't say you do uh, believe in this if you don't believe in this. Please mm -hmm. speak out. That kind of stuff. And it's it's easier said than done, but this is what we do every day. Mm. Just talk to our team. How would you do it? Do you believe in this solution? What can stop us from achieving that? Stuff like that. Yeah. It's an interesting... Uh... Yeah, it is very complex. I think maybe for some of us are more talented in doing that because we are already empathetic and uh, extrovert for others it will be more challenging yeah, yeah. i have a secret um, card up, up up my sleeve that my wife is a psychologist wow okay uh, now that explains everything <laughs> yeah yeah she she helps me with that um sometimes i actually bring up uh, complex uh, work situations to her and she helps me understand it from the psychology point of view yeah and that's um, that's very very helpful. She's my, yeah, partner. In, she's you know she's a partner in my business, although she's not employed there. <laughs> no, that's cool. That's cool. I love that. Um, have you been in in therapy or coaching yourself at some point? Oh, uh, well, therapy, yes. Yeah. Not coaching. You mean I? Yeah, I went to a psychologist myself to try to understand some of the fears and some of the problems that I have. I went for a few years. It really helped me. Yeah. Yeah. I can report about the same. Uh, the reason why I started uh, going to a therapist was exactly because I wanted to be a more effective leader. And at some point, it became very visible that certain issues that I have with myself, with, you know, childhood patterns, tra traumas, and so on, and so on, are actually affecting the way that I act as a leader. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> it's exactly. very, very connected. Uh, yeah. But we don't speak much about it. I mean, we quote all those big books that yeah. uh, are on the famous lists of uh, <laughs> CEOs and so on and so forth. Yeah. But I think, in a way, sometimes we need to go a bit deeper yeah. and explore what's beneath the surface what like what is the the tip of the iceberg on the other side <laughs> i agree 100 yeah. percent. i can just give you one example of what happened to me so i'm always taking responsibility for all kinds of things mm. uh even the things that i cannot control i'm very nervous about this and sometimes it's killing me things that i cannot influence and the, my psychologist really helped me understand that there's just some things out of your control you're not god and you're not able to mm. control everything and sometimes you just have to accept and this is uh for, for somebody it might be obvious but for me it was uh uh you know a, a thought that really helped me 
it's very interesting how you can read a sentence or you can hear it again and again and it sounds logical yeah. and it's like yeah of course i mean why would i worry so much it doesn't help yeah pro solving the problem in any way and then there are the moments where you kind of like experience it on a on a emotional and visceral level and the same sentence comes again and then ah now i understand yeah. it <laughs> yeah, for sure. so i think the therapeutic process is less about learning the, the right sentences or the right answers to your questions, but it's more about transforming your emotional interior yeah. <laughs> than learning new stuff. And I think this is the, the big difference between just reading a book and uh, going into therapy. I agree. Yeah. Couldn't agree more. Yeah. yeah. But yeah, you are enlightened <laughs> at home already <laughs> about the process of, of therapy. Oh, it's an anyway. never-ending story. You know? <clears throat> yeah. Therapy is just, it's, you can always do it. What about, um, you know, managing such a dispersed team? I mean, mm. you have a team now in, um, still in Ukraine. Yes, in Ukraine. You have the team in Singapore. Yeah. Switzerland, maybe? Tell me, yeah. Yeah, we have teams in different locations. Uh, we have a team in Ukraine. We have a team in Kazakhstan. We have a legal team and uh, financial team in Singapore. We have uh, partners in those other locations that I mentioned. Mm. So, yeah, there's, um, I think it goes back to what we just discussed about understanding and embracing that people are different. And you have to accept them for what they are, but also lead them towards a single mission that you have. Mm-hmm. Uh, and single vision and single values that you have across your organization because our values are the same whether you're in Ukraine, Kazakhstan or Singapore, right? This is what we believe in and we believe it regardless of where you are. Mm -hmm. So it goes back to that. But yeah, I'd just like to use this opportunity also while I'm talking about my team to just give a huge, huge shout out to my team in Ukraine, mm -hmm. our team in Ukraine. Wonderful, resilient uh, team. Um, I couldn't be proud of them more for what they did during the last year, despite everything that fell that way. Um, I guess also for the other team members, uh, it's challenging to relate to what their colleagues are experiencing. Yeah, We were lucky in this regard because people, uh, uh, we are all very like-minded. Uh, we believe in certain things. Again, it all goes back to the values. We believe in certain things. I personally believe that uh, you know, you cannot, um, yeah, you cannot kill, you cannot steal, you cannot uh, break each other people's life, you cannot uh, capture other people and torture them and things like that. And we all believe that. And I think all the people who believe that, they know whose side to choose in this war. Mm -hmm. mm. <clears throat> you yourself are based in Sofia? Yeah. With your family? Mm. Um, how do you feel now being physically away from, from the team and what is happening in Kiev? Yeah, it's very tough. I mean, the remote working part is okay-ish in the sense that I think we all got used to it during COVID. Yeah. Mm -hmm. But you're probably also not even able to visit Ukraine. Yeah. Well, not at the time. Well, I mean, yeah. the, the the part that you're not able to shake hands and look people in the eyes and, you know, just be there. Uh, of course, it has a negative effect. But, um, yeah, I, I really hope that uh, we're going to be soon in a situation where it will be possible again. Because, mm -hmm. yeah, I, I'm homesick, want to go home. And so is my family. And... Uh, 
yeah, let's just hope we'll have this opportunity soon. But um, business-wise, we're managing. Yeah. Did you feel like you found a second home here in Sofia, in a way? I thought that, uh, you know, we've been here almost one year. Uh, the people of Bulgaria were very, very welcoming to us. They mm. treat us like their brothers and sisters. I really, really appreciate that. We just learned that recently that Bulgaria was also a huge aid to Ukraine throughout the last year, which we're also eternally grateful for. So, yeah, I, I, I actually feel great here. I, okay. I like this country a lot. It's a sunny place, <laughs> it's a very welcoming place. Uh, mm. Yeah, so I, I like it here a lot. Yeah. I think especially in our <clears throat> community, this bubble uh, of the startup and the tech ecosystem um, is on the side of most probably of Ukraine in this situation. I was very disappointed in the beginning of the war when I saw so many people in Bulgaria being supportive or maybe in actually fearing Russia. So mm. they would actually pick the other side. It made me feel really ashamed. <laughs> so when I read about the government at some point, you know, sending support to to Ukraine, it felt like, okay, now I'm in a way proud to, mm. to be like that. And I hope that uh, you're not feeling unwelcome by this other part of the society, which no, I is still kind of like, I think they're just afraid <laughs> well, of Russia. I cannot comment on the um, you know minds of certain people. I can say from my personal experience and the experience of our family that we were very welcome here. Mm. The people here in Sofia and in other cities of Bulgaria were supporting us with uh, open hands and warm hearts. And uh, I really believe that people really understand what's going on and they, they will support the right side. Mm. I, I think, um, yeah, people with with the correct values will, will know who's right. Yeah. In any case, I am almost. Uh, I would like almost to encourage you to maybe explore while you're here the market in Bulgaria for <laughs> uh, <clears throat> homesters because I think that we really need it. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Maybe a few. I just want to say a few words also. I met here really great, great people from yeah. the business community. Yes. Uh, well, Georgi Pavlov himself, who is the founder of PropTech Bega. He was the one who connected us. Thank you, Georgi, for making the introduction. Yeah, <laughs> uh, and uh, I got uh, by him to meet the wonderful PropTech community here mm -hmm. and also entrepreneurs from other industries. And I was very uh, pleasantly amazed by uh, the vibrant, young, uh, creative community of startups here. Mm -hmm. There are people creating great projects. Um, I got to meet some of them personally, discuss. Some people reached out to me saying, okay, how would you do this? How, would I, how, would, how should I do that? So they're very open-minded. They're very, um, very creative. So I think uh, there's a lot of things going on here, which I did not see from the outside. Okay. And uh, yeah, I, I have to give um, very big respects and kudos to the local community. And I just really hope that more companies like this will emerge and really drive forward the Bulgarian scene and the Bulgarian economy. I think in the end, it is about, um, you know, how strong is your community when you want to develop as, a, as an innovation hub, as a startup mm. hub. Because this knowledge sharing that is happening between the different founders, especially um, because there will be 
some which are in the beginning of their journey, they're going to be first-time founders. Now you have uh, what, you have gone through the full cycle of the mm. company, so you were part of the beginning yeah. where it was all just an idea on a napkin. Now you exited the company. Yeah. <laughs> You're now in the process where you have to plan the next steps of yeah. uh, going even more international and conquering even more markets. So I think this kind of experience is something that could that could be very valuable for others which are a bit earlier in the stage. Yeah. So absolutely. thank you for also being part now of this community and sharing your knowledge. I think, uh, you know, at uh, the recursive <laughs> and why we called it the recursive, we believe that stories shape stories. Mm. So I think the success story of uh, one person could be the beginning of the success story of another because it is about inspiration, it is about knowledge sharing, it is about role models in yeah. a way as well. So um, having you here in this kind of role, it's uh, it's amazing. Thank you for, for Thank saying you for all these me. things. Maybe again, another difficult topic, but um, how is... Um, the current situation now affecting affecting the Ukrainian startup community. I guess mm. you're much more dispersed uh, than before. How do you remain cohesive? How do you, um, you know, keep the ties and the relationships mm. which are needed for exactly for the reasons that we just discussed? Yeah, I, I think the people of Ukraine, I always knew that they're special and they're amazing. But now in this last year, which was a full scale war, I got to believe that really, really firmly how special and amazing they are. Uh, and that goes to ordinary people, of course, to the people who protect us every day on the front lines, but also to the business community, right? Mm -hmm. Because people were so creative. They had to ad adapt so much and they had to change so much. And then, you know, we're alive and kicking one year in. Who would have thought, right? It's David versus Goliath. Who would have thought? You're, you're an alive? inspiration, I think, for the whole world. I yeah. mean, you're really tough guys and girls, by the way. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so um, the, the business community is um, a very important part of that. I think, first of all, every Ukrainian business, every, I think every Ukrainian person actually helps our cause, supports the army, supports... Uh, you know, our effort generally yeah. and the businesses, they were so adaptive. Like, for example, there's businesses, I'll just name one. There's a business I know that is a, a drone manufacturer. Well, not a manufacturer, they're a drone company. They're importing and managing drones for a lot of, uh, uh, usually for the agriculture. Okay. Now they're doing it for military, mm. right? There's guys who are, okay, IT communities. What can we do? Okay, let's go hack, right? Mm. Or let's go create code software for the military, Miltech. Uh, and all kinds of things, and that's how quickly uh, uh, and um, yeah, promptly we can adjust and uh, run for the common cause, you know. So generally, I think um, we endured. Uh, we uh, we keep we keep pushing. Of course, uh, yeah. Last year, in terms of the economic growth, was very hard, but I firmly believe that this year and the years onwards we'll see a positive growth, and uh, maybe we will even, in some ways, be stronger as a country and as economy than we were before. I think, um, you know, going through a crisis sometimes can be very strengthening. Uh, also a community and a relationship. You know, a crisis is always, again, a chance. So when you pass through that, you look back and then you're thinking, and these are the people that I went through this kind of, you know, difficulty. 
Yeah. Uh, I always feel closer to those people afterwards. Maybe not always during the crisis, because a crisis is such a chaos and emotions erupt and uh, you might feel like you are really, really pissed at someone. Mm. This is life. I cannot relate to what you're experiencing at all, so I'm not going to mix it up. But I definitely believe that difficult situations make relationships between the people stronger. Yeah. If they survive, of course. Yeah, what yeah. doesn't kill us makes us stronger, right? I mean, again, uh, it's not something to be happy about in any way. It's a very sad situation, uh, unnecessary, absolutely. Mm. But I, I believe that we will come out of this stronger. We are fighting for the right cause, and end of the day, we will prevail. Yeah. You're an entrepreneur that actually managed to go through... Uh, the full cycle of a company. Mm. You were there from the beginning, uh, went through all the challenges and the pivoting and yeah. uh, entering different markets, scaling internationally. And now you reach the point where you exited the company yeah. during year. Yeah. Tell me, uh, who who supposed the deal? Who started the negotiations? It was Ringier. They were already a shareholder in the beginning, right? Yeah. So um, yeah, it's a, it's quite a long story in the sense uh, we met the guys. Um, I think in 2018. Yeah. At some event, um, just got to know each other, and uh, back in, back then we were looking for some funding. So we told them what they were doing. They were interested. I think they first visited us in like beginning of 2019 into Kiev. Um, and uh, we had the first deal when they became members of the board and they had a minority stake in 2019. Yeah. And then after that, they were very, very supportive of us. They really helped us grow. Uh, they helped us enter a few markets. Some of the markets where we work today are actually co-owned by them, mm -hmm. which is a very big help. Wow. Okay. And uh, yeah, I think throughout the years, uh, they basically saw what we are capable of. We were able to prove them who we are, how we work, what kind of values we, we have, mm -hmm. going back to that. And um, that's why they made a decision in 2022 uh, to purchase the company. Uh, when the war started, uh, I was actually in Zurich having meetings with them about uh, our progress. Yeah. And um, that's when they made a decision, despite the, the, despite the war, uh, despite uh, the uncertainty to to purchase the company. Mm -hmm. And uh, we are very, very grateful f to them for that. And now at the moment, we will work together to to scale our solution. Ringia is actually active today in 18 countries. Yeah. Not everywhere in the property business, but that opens, opens a lot of doors for us. Mm. So at the moment, we are actively working on a few more markets to to try to implement our solutions there. So the last year, February, for you was actually a very emotional month. It was the beginning of the war and it was the month where you understood that you're going to exit the company. Uh, wow. Last year, uh, 2022 was without a doubt the uh, hardest year of, I think, of the lives of a lot of Ukrainians, including myself, mm -hmm. uh, both professionally and personally. On the professional level, yes, we, we agreed that the company will be purchased. But on the other hand, we had to take care of business continuity, of the safety of our employees, yeah. and all kinds of things you never really think about unless you're in a situation like that. So that was very, very a lot of challenges. 
yeah, I'm happy to say that we've overcome all of them. Our team is intact. Uh, I think all of our employees who are with us a year ago are with us. Mm-hmm. We've um, we've managed to uh, you know secure their safety, their uh, the independence of our offices. You know, so um, yeah, for us last year was very tough, but the end, end of the day, it worked out. Mm-hmm. Uh, but <clears throat> coming back to the exit deal, so. Ringier were a strategic investor from the beginning. Not yeah. the, not day one, but from not day 2018. One, but yeah. the, when they started, the, so when they invested in yeah. and acquired the, sh- the first share in the company. Okay. What did you learn about having a strategic investor in your cap table? I guess it's much um, different than having just a VC, right? Mm. You have to manage the relationship in a different way. You have to steer it towards a win-win um constellation mm. <laughs> for both parties so that the business is actually benefiting from the assets and uh, resources that Ringier could provide yeah well for us um this kind of a deal made a lot of sense we thought uh having them on board with their vast experience in the mar- marketplace business yeah. uh in the um, property business and they actually helped us grow a lot and i don't think we would be in the position where we are today without them. So, wow. yeah, for okay. sure. Because as I said, they helped us enter new markets. They helped us learn things we would, wouldn't know without them. So uh, having somebody like this international um, diversified media company behind our backs made all the difference. Mm. So I really think it was to the benefit of all the shareholders and the company in general. So we've talked about your past. We've talked about the current developments on the prop tech scene yeah. and the real estate uh, market. Yeah. We talked about the current situation in Ukraine and how is this affecting you. I would like to ask you a bit more about the future. Yeah. And um, I've been observing you and I have the sense that uh, you're actually a very optimistic person. I mean, if you weren't optimistic, you wouldn't be courageous and just jump and believe that from this big knot, you can actually untie it to a point where you actually solve the problem. So um, obviously this is a very big part of you. Um, Tell me about your understanding of success and uh, maybe you can try to describe a situation where you feel like, okay, now everything in my life is at the point where I feel like I have contributed, I have successful. Do you have a vision like that? Yeah. I don't know, sitting in front of a fireplace with a cigar <laughs> and thinking certain things or how, how, yeah. how would you that. experience that? I, I don't see the future in the sense of a picture of like, okay, this is it. This yeah. is, I've done everything. I think it's a bit more about the process. I'm, uh, I'm really committed to making an impact. And that's that's why I wake up every day, you know. I really believe that what we have built and what we're going to build in the future is making a positive impact on the lives of people. And mm-hmm. I want just to I want this impact to grow. You know, one of the best things in my career so far was when we had um we received some videos from b- the people who would buy apartments through our transactional model. So uh, we would uh, help actually help people find and buy the home of their dreams and they would send us back the video of their family moving wow. in 
you know, no, it's, it's, it's amazing. It's it amazing. Is. And, uh, you know, that's when you realize that you've done something right. You know, I would never trade my career for doing something, you know, for a lot more money, but, you know, pointless or useless. That's, mm. that's what it's all about for me. Um, and that's why, that's why I wake up every day. So uh, what I want for the future is professionally, of course, for us to grow, to be able to scale this business our model, our experience, our know-how to different markets and actually help more people, as cheesy as it sounds, help uh, more people find the, the their dream homes, mm -hmm. right? Of course, being with that a successful, successful, profitable and growing business. And for my country, I, I really hope that uh, we're going to prevail. Uh, people will return to their homes um, and we're going to uh, be a growing, successful, wonderful country yeah, for our kids and grandkids. So I see a vision where you're in your home, <laughs> in Ukraine, back, and a lot of many people, you know, tagging themselves maybe across the map of Europe with uh, just moving into their homes. Exactly, all <laughs> over the world, all over the world. Um, yeah, we just yeah. want to keep doing that. Uh, we just want to keep people, uh, keep helping people find their dream homes, and I think that's a great mission to be on. It is. Definitely. I think this sense of belonging and, you know, feeling like you're at home is one of the most important things that uh, make us happy. Yeah. Yeah. Um, you have a daughter, right? I have a daughter. She's two years old. <laughs> uh, she's wonderful. And yeah. I guess this is also part of the impact that you're going to leave on the world. <laughs> yeah, it's true. It's true. It's true. Yeah. Um, yeah, I have a wonderful daughter and I just really hope that yeah, she'll also be able to, to be home and feel home and be happy in this world. Yeah. I wish you that too. I love this vision. <laughs> Thank you. If uh, we can somehow support you in this vision, let us know. We'll definitely keep track of your further developments. And as said, maybe you can try the Bulgarian market as well. We need you. <laughs> yeah, I'd love that. It is necessarily I'd needed. love to pay back some of the, of the welcomeness <laughs> that I've uh, received here. So maybe, maybe. Thank you, Dimitri. It's been such a pleasure having you here. Um, the pleasure is certainly mine. Thank you for, investing, uh, for inviting me and uh, thank you for being a great host. Thank you. Next on the recursive podcast, Orlin Dochev is the managing partner at Next Consult. And I would say that we are quite good. I mean, we are the preferred partner. So mm -hmm. we want to be a big, to have the critical mass of being a big company, exporting top knowledge abroad mm -hmm. based on top vendors. And we can be successful all over the world. But it's a very expensive exercise. I mean, opening offices here and there, sure. hiring people here and there. So that's why we are growing by partnership. And if you are just as passionate about innovation as we are, hit subscribe for the Recursive Podcast on YouTube or your favorite podcast platform. We're everywhere.